Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're pediatric residents at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into the case. I was in clinic the other week and saw a 10-year-old boy for his well child check. His mom said that for the past three months, he's had a chronic non-productive cough that occurs during exercise and at night. He's had eczema since he was young, and they have a strong family history of allergies. Sounds like we're going to talk about asthma today. Yep, and it's a very common condition. We see it in pediatrics, both inpatient, on the wards, or in the PICU, and also in the outpatient setting. Did you know that asthma affects 1 in 12 kids? I didn't, but that sounds like a lot and makes sense given how often we see it. And it's one of the leading causes of pediatric emergency room visits, and it was the fourth leading cause of pediatric hospitalizations back in 2018. So definitely a condition in pediatrics we should know how to manage. Yeah. So to understand the management, it's best to start with the pathophysiology. Asthma is an immune-mediated inflammatory condition that causes intermittent and reversible lower airway obstruction due to smooth muscle constriction and airway narrowing. The inflammatory pathways include leukotrienes and cytokines, which stimulate IgE production. So let's make sure to remember this when we start talking about medicines later in this episode. Yeah, but before we even talk about medicines, like all conditions, we should consider how environment and exposures can influence asthma. So common triggers for asthma include things like respiratory viral infections, exercise, allergens like dust, mold, and environmental pollens, irritants from cigarettes, marijuana, fire smoke, air pollution, perfumes, and paints, and changes in weather, especially cold weather. Lesser-known triggers can include strong emotions and medications like aspirin, NSAIDs, and non-selective beta blockers. So say a kid comes in clinic and parents think they have asthma. What type of questions are you going to ask them? Yeah, so daytime symptoms like shortness of breath, wheezing, chest tightness or pain, and less commonly dry cough, with or without exercise, waking up at nighttime with symptoms, exercise or activity limitations, and any history of systemic steroid use. The atopic triad is asthma, allergies, and eczema in patients with a personal or family history of atopy, so first-degree relatives, are at increased risk for developing asthma. So sometimes people say they have wheezing, but it's important to ask more questions to tease out if it's really asthma or not. A lot of people's understanding of wheezing isn't actually a true asthma wheeze. Consider GERD or postnasal drip if they have a chronic recurrent cough, tracheomalacia or laringomalacia in the younger children with isolated wheeze or shrida, or a foreign body aspiration if they have acute symptoms or asymmetric breath sounds. Also less commonly, but still important to know, is the cardiac wheeze in congestive heart failure when there's fluid backup into the lungs. Yeah, that's a really good point, Tammy. So not all wheezing is asthma. For kids older than five, you can use PFTs or pulmonary function tests for diagnosis, although these aren't necessary to truly diagnose asthma. The major spirometric diagnostic criteria require a good response to albuterol or other bronchodilators. Remember that asthma is mostly a clinical diagnosis. Often you'll hear clinicians say reactive airway disease in younger kids or a new diagnosis when we're not sure it's asthma. But if they come in multiple times with similar symptoms, it's pretty much a slam dunk for asthma. Okay, so say we've established our patient has asthma based on symptoms and good albuterol response on PFTs. Now we need to classify it. Asthma is classified based on symptom severity, control, and lung function on PFTs. There are four severity categories, intermittent, 
mild persistent, moderate persistent, and severe persistent asthma. The symptom and control criteria for all of the severity categories are the same regardless of age, except for the nighttime awakenings, which I'll get to. Lung function criteria also differ between the 5 to 12-year-olds and the 12 and ups. But remember that that's not a part of the 0 to 4-year-old criteria, as we discuss, since they won't be able to cooperate. So when you look up asthma severity classification tables, you'll see three different ones for the 0 to 4-year-olds, the 5 to 12-year-olds, and the 12 and ups. The intermittent category for kids 5 and up is generally the easiest to remember if you think about the rule of twos, which is daytime symptoms for two or fewer days per week, albuterol use two or fewer days per week, not counting pre-exercise, less than two courses of systemic steroids in the past 12 months, and nighttime awakenings two or fewer times per month. Any more than those and you're automatically in the persistent category. However, for kids less than five, so the zero to four-year-old category, any nighttime symptoms automatically puts them in the persistent category range. Also for all ages, there needs to be no activity limitation to be in the intermittent category. So there are a few questionnaires you can use to monitor the control of a patient's asthma, including the asthma control test, childhood asthma control test, or the asthma control questionnaire. These questionnaires allow for an easy systemic approach in a fast-moving primary care office or urgent care, and they're evidence-based and validated in multiple languages. We'll include links to these in the episode details. Yeah, so once you've determined a patient's asthma severity, you can decide on management. So everyone gets an as-needed SABA, which stands for short-acting beta agonist, which works as a quick bronchodilator. This is usually albuterol, but can be leave albuterol as well. Remember that asthma is due to airway smooth muscle constriction, so SABAs work to combat this, as do long-acting beta agonists, or LABAs. Once you get to the persistent category of asthma, you start with a low-dose inhaled steroid, like budesonide, or alternatively, a leukotriene receptor antagonist like Montelukast, which can be helpful in patients with allergies or exercise-induced symptoms. If patients still don't have adequate control of their asthma, the next steps are to add a LABA, in addition to the low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, or just increase the dose of the steroid alone. You should also get pulmonology involved at this point, and they may add on things like omelazumab, a monoclonal anti-IgE antibody. If you recall, we talked about how leukotrienes and IgE are involved in the airway inflammatory pathway, and that ultimately leads to asthma, so it makes sense that we want to target them when we treat asthma. An important note before escalating asthma therapy is to assess medication adherence and a proper delivery use. Spacers and having the right technique are important to ensure the medication is delivered to the lungs instead of to the back of the mouth. That's a really good point. So let's hear from Dr. Rory Cameron Kretzmer, one of our pediatric pulmonologists at UC Davis, on a new therapy called SMART. So SMART therapy stands for Single Maintenance and Reliever Therapy and has been well studied internationally for a number of years. As of the NIH's 2020 asthma updates, it's now been incorporated into our asthma guideline um, approach. And um, the recommendations are for step three and step four in children four years and older. You can use budesonide, which is your inhaled corticosteroid component, with a long-acting beta agonist on both a scheduled and as-needed basis with a maximum dosage of 12 puffs per day, um, which is the equivalent of 54 micrograms of 4-motorol. In a variety of studies in 
children 12 years and older and adults, this has been shown to have a relative risk reduction of somewhere between about 35 and 50% for asthma exacerbations. However, it has not been as well studied in young children, and it has not been well studied um, for symptom control of asthma. But it's an exciting um, emerging concept in the United States that has been used um, internationally for a number of years. So I also read in that guideline that for kids zero to four with three or more episodes of respiratory infection induced wheezing, they can be given a short course of inhaled steroids at the start of infections instead of just albuterol as needed outpatient. Yeah, and for kids 12 and up with severe persistent asthma, you can add on a long-acting muscarinic antagonist like teotropium to the inhaled steroid and lava. These new guidelines will definitely add to outpatient practices, and I expect that we'll start to see more asthma kids being managed with smart therapy. Now, let's move on and talk about how to manage an acute asthma exacerbation. So, if a kid is having an acute asthma flare, we typically counsel them to use their albuterol rescue inhaler at home. Some of them might be seen by their pediatrician or primary care doctor or at an urgent care and be prescribed an oral steroid to combat the flare, or they might just send them to the ER if things look like they're headed in the wrong direction. Patients can use up to six puffs of albuterol every four hours at home, but if they're needing to use it more frequently or having a really hard time breathing still, then they should just come to the emergency room and give themselves four to eight puffs every 15 minutes, up to three times while they're on the way. Once they're in the emergency room, hopefully their respiratory status is stable enough that we can ask them a few questions instead of rushing them straight to the airway stabilization. So what questions do you typically ask, Lydia? So I like to ask patients what they've done so far today to treat the asthma, what medications they've used in the past, how much albuterol they use at baseline, and whether they've been hospitalized or intubated for an asthma exacerbation. Also, if they're on a controller inhaler and if they use it as prescribed. Those are good questions. Frequent albuterol use with controller adherence is associated with worse outcomes, so it's good to know that. But if there's not an established history of asthma, what things should we consider for acute shortness of breath, hypoxia, or difficulty breathing? Yeah, so things like bronchiolitis, croup, epiglottitis, anaphylaxis, and foreign bodies should be on the differential. So going back to our patient with known asthma coming in for an asthma exacerbation, What's recommended and what we do at UC Davis is give them three back-to-back duonebs, which is a mixture of albuterol and ipratropium, every 15 to 20 minutes for bronchospasm, as well as start the steroids such as dexamethasone, methylprednisolone, or prednisone slash prednisolone to reduce inflammation. If this improves their symptoms, you can give them a short two to five day course of steroids. So dexamethasone and methylprednisolone are once daily dosing, but methylprednisolone can only be given IV. So we typically switch over to the tablet prednisone or liquid prednisolone when a patient is stable and can take stuff by mouth. The dosing of dexamethasone is 0.6 milligrams per kg once daily with a max of 16 milligrams per day, which is the same dosing that you would use for croup. This is usually a two-day course. Prednisone or prednisolone is a little different in that if you start with it, you'll give a higher dose of 1 to 2 mg per kg with a max of 60 mg for the first dose slash day. Then the next day, you give them only 0.5 to 1 mg per kg divided twice daily for a total 5-day course. So that includes that first higher day dose. So except for severe exacerbation with impending respiratory failure, studies haven't shown significant difference between routes of dosing. So if they're tolerating stuff by mouth, you can plan to give them oral medication instead of IV or IM. 
But what happens, Tammy, if they're still wheezing and having shortness of breath using your initial measures? Well, that's when you should admit the patient. So the determination of whether they go to the PICU versus the floor depends on how frequently they need albuterol after the initial treatment, or if they're needing more respiratory support like high-flow nasal cannula, BiPAP, or worst-case invasive ventilation based on their work of breathing. So at UC Davis, any more frequent than every two hours of albuterol, and we generally switch to continuous albuterol and send them up to the PICU. Also at our hospital, we can't have kids on the floor requiring any more respiratory support than high-flow nasal cannula, so that would be another reason to send them to the PICU. Unless they're on the bronchiolitis pathway, which is a quick plug for that episode too. Or they use CPAP or BiPAP at baseline, and they're admitted for a non-respiratory issue. So regarding other pharmacologic measures... Patients can receive IV magnesium if they have symptoms even after albuterol, ipotropium, and steroids. Epinephrine and terbutaline are last resort options to remember as well. All these medications serve to dilate those airways and to really try to limit the airway inflammation as much as possible. Remember that reduced inspiratory flow in young kids and those with severe exacerbations may limit drug delivery through the inhaled route. So IM and IV bronchodilators become more important for those kids. We try really hard not to intubate an asthma patient, although it does happen if they truly have respiratory failure. Remember that intubating an asthma patient doesn't really help treat the underlying condition like the medications we talked about. Asthma is an obstructive airway disease, meaning that it's a problem with exhalation rather than inhalation. So that means increasing ventilation by intubation doesn't actually help that much. Intubation eliminates the patient's own diaphragmatic effort, And so we have to overcome all that airway resistance from low dynamic compliance with positive pressure. Increasing positive pressure can lead to a lot of issues like pneumothoraces. And these patients are really hard to extubate too because the intubation itself doesn't help with the disease and actually causes more airway inflammation. It's also associated with high morbidity. So besides avoiding intubation, what are your other takeaway home points for today? So we learned that asthma is a disease of intermittent and reversible bronchoconstriction that causes cough, shortness of breath, and wheezing. We control symptoms with an inhaled steroid, plus or minus a LABA or long-acting beta agonist, and albuterol as needed, with titration up based on asthma severity and control. For acute asthma attacks, use albuterol, plus or minus ibotropium, and systemic steroids as first line. Additional medications that can be used for more severe disease include things like magnesium, epinephrine, and terbutaline. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Mogania for podcasting production support and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlist for supervision. We are supported by funding from the UC Davis Medical Center Department of Pediatrics and the Western Association of Pediatric Program Directors. Mm-hmm.